welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host every other week, Ariel Garten, co-founder of Muse, the brain sensing headband. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation and mindfulness practices have the power to change our lives. Today's guest is Dr. Jenny Tates. Dr. Tates is a psychologist and has written several articles for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the San Francisco Chronicle, among others. She works with her patients to provide them with tools to get unstuck in many areas of their lives. She incorporates mindfulness into different types of therapies, including dialectical behavior therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. Dr. Tates recently wrote an article for the New York Times about turning regrets into self-improvement. I was taken by this article because of the many ways that regret can drag us down and keep us stuck. She's also the author of a book called How to Be Single and Happy, Science-Based Strategies for Keeping Your Sanity While Looking for a Soulmate. In this interview, we discuss both the article and her book, and of course, how mindfulness helps. Before we get started, just a little reminder to check out our app, Meditation Studio, with meditations designed to help you with many of life's challenges and to inspire you just when you need it. Now, here's Dr. Jenny Tates. Jenny, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Patricia. I'm really excited to talk to you. So I want to start with this article that you wrote last week for the New York Times, which was called Turning Regret into Self-Improvement. And you outlined six steps for that. I have always been really curious about regret. Some of us have it, some of us don't. And as you said, like it is human nature to linger on regret. And if left unchecked, it can turn into all sorts of depression, and other things that we don't necessarily like to have in our lives. And so I wondered if you talk a little bit about these six steps that you recommend in terms of not getting stuck in that endless cycle. Absolutely. And what's interesting, there was a study a while ago, I'm not sure if it's still true today, but at one point, regret was found to be one of the most commonly described emotions in human experience. It's one of the most popular challenges people come to therapy with. And I think it's one of the things that tend to sort of when quiet moments or when we're about to fall asleep, it's one of the things that kind of can creep up on us. And so just thinking about the patients that I've seen and the most evidence-based ways to change how we feel, I thought through six steps that I think apply to both regret, but also other emotions. And so the first step is to really think about how you cope with emotions. It could be regret, it could be sadness, it could be fear, whatever it is. And I think many people can fall into two categories. They either kind of try to push emotions away or they try not to think about it, but ignoring how they feel, putting on a happy face in spite of how they might feel internally is one option, sort of suppressing. And another option is obsessing, ruminating, ruminating is a fancy word for repeatedly mulling over in a way that's really not productive. And so the first thing I really want people to think about is how they cope. Are they pushing away or are they drowning in? Obviously, there's a third option, which is the middle path, which is sort of acknowledging and noticing and accepting. So if there's some sort of regret, there's a difference between like trying not to think about it. Maybe it's with distractions, like numbing out through watching Netflix or a substance or beating yourself up. 
Or the third one can be to just notice what it is that you do wish you did differently. So sort of acknowledging and accepting. How do you actually change your habit of that? So if you have the habit to push away your emotions or obsess and ruminate, how do you actually learn to acknowledge and accept and move forward? I love that you're asking that because I think that is a million dollar question. And I think the thing to really think about is one of the most motivating strategies is to really think through the pros and cons of various options. And so does pushing away actually really work? One of my patients described this so well, it's kind of like this smell in the background that you can't really get rid of. There's really no such thing as being able to push something away effectively. And I shouldn't tell you that I want you to be the listener to really think through, like, how has this worked for me? Does pushing away serve me? Is it actually something I can manage? So what are the pros and cons of pushing away? Because research does find that pushing away can lead to reduced joy. James Gross is a professor at Stanford, and he finds that suppressing reduces joy. It also maintains this belief that like we can't cope with our emotions, that they're too overwhelming. So really mm-hmm. looking at the costs of that, so trying to push away. And then also, a lot of people assume that if they give something more thought, they will somehow hit a jackpot solution. But to really think about like, does thinking about something for hours actually empower me to take a step forward? Or does it just make me feel terrible about myself? And I think if people are really honest with themselves and they look at the pros and cons of ruminating versus accepting, that can be really kind of eye-opening and enlightening. And so I think the first thing is really to just see like, number one, do I like obsess, push away or accept? And if I do one of the previous strategies, how do they work for me and do they work? And one of my biggest messages that I really try to relate to my patients and the people who read my writing that it's never too late. Even if your whole life you've spent obsessing or pushing away, this is a moment that you could choose to do something different. Yeah. And that's the second one, right? Interrupt your obsessing. Yeah. So I am very fascinated with research on rumination and it's kind of mind-blowing how damaging and destructive rumination is. And a lot of people sort of experience it to be like quicksand. Like once you get in, it's really hard to disentangle from the grip of this mental habit. And so just again, to be clear for people that are unfamiliar with the term rumination, it's kind of like just mulling over and over and over again in a way that's unproductive and also kind of like makes you feel even worse. Oh, I didn't do well. I didn't sound good on this conversation with someone I might go on a date with. I always sound like an idiot. No one will ever like me. It just kind of like gets worse and worse each permutation. And it's really hard to like use thinking to combat thinking, like trying to convince yourself that you sounded okay is just kind of like getting you more stuck. It's again, like more quicksand. And so some of the most helpful strategies in step two, after you kind of notice how you cope, is to engage in something that's a concrete consuming alternative behavior. And so remarkably, I know this sounds a little (laughs) jarring, literally, but sticking your face for 30 seconds in a salad bowl of ice water, it is incredibly powerful and activating what's called a dive response. And that redirects blood flow from non-essential to essential organs. And really, I mean, it's just like if you, the ice water sounds too much, you could jump in a cold shower or quickly change your environment. But really like anchoring yourself in the present rather than using thinking to combat thinking is a powerful way out. So the ice water is one activity, really noticing three sights, three sounds, three sensations in the current moment if you're caught in something from the past. 
uh, intense exercise for a couple minutes using a high intensity interval training app. A couple of things are doing something mentally taxing, like listening mm-hmm. to your favorite books or authors in alphabetical order, something that's going to get you out of this autoplay over and over again. Like if you're sitting in an exam, looking at the question more and more isn't going to help you as much as maybe stepping out, getting a cup of water, looking at the pictures in the hallway. Okay. And number three? The third step is to revisit your regret and really shift your perspective around it because a lot of us, whether it be regret or some other thought that comes into our mind, we get really like tangled. We get really like wed and attached to certain thoughts. So oftentimes with regret, we think if only I had done X, then my whole life would be better and different. A lot of times we hoard the most painful thought or we're like tightly grasping the most painful thought, but to just really realize we just don't know. We just don't know. Thoughts are just mental events. We could just notice them. A lot of stories around regret are just stories. I mean, how could we possibly know if only we had taken that other job that everything would have worked out perfectly or if only we had given that person we dated five years ago more of a chance? We just don't know. And so to really sort of step back and have some perspective that your thoughts are just mental events. They're not necessarily facts. And a lot of times when our emotions are intense, we're stuck to like the most catastrophic conclusion. And so once we're a little more regulated from doing something to take a break, then we can sort of come back and remind ourselves like we just don't know. We have no idea. And so um, revisiting the regret with a little more flexibility in terms of your perspective. Yeah, I love that one. And it usually is much easier when you do that from a distance. So then you can see a new perspective and you might even see the gifts from that experience that you spent so much time regretting. But that's always harder to do in the beginning of a regret. But I really like that one because I think focusing on what you gain and what you do with your sort of what if feelings and how unfortunate they are because you can't possibly know. I think that's really, really an important point. And I think sometimes we rely, just to piggyback on what you're saying, sometimes we rely on other people to tell us these reminders. But I think sometimes when other people tell us there's positive in this situation, it could come off as dismissive or invalidating. So for us to really do some soul searching and offer it to ourselves might put us in a better spot to actually sit well with the change in perspective. Yeah. And then your next one is really all about self-compassion when you talk about the ideal mentor. Yeah. So again, I mean, it is so tempting. and It's another tactic that's worth sort of weighing the pros and cons around. But some of us think that like if we just beat ourselves up and repeatedly like tell ourselves how badly we screwed up, that that is going to help us remember to stay on track going forward or not forget our mistake. But actually research finds that self-compassion is much more inspiring and motivating and useful. And so if you had a really good mentor, they might offer you some encouragement and self-compassion is you offering some of that to yourself because you really need to be a cheerleader to move forward and get unstuck. And one of the stories that I love sharing in my writing and also with my patients is I had this remarkable experience where I went to visit, I went to psychology training at Monty Roberts Farm. And for people who aren't familiar, Monty Roberts is a horse trainer who uses like a kind tone and respectful distance with horses rather than whips. And I personally watched Monty get into a small corral with a horse and train a horse really effectively with like kind words and compassion. And we're used to sort of thinking like a whip is going to really work well, but 
if we do a little different, we might be shocked by the outcome. Yeah, that's great. And then the next one is clarify what matters to you. My whole philosophy as a psychologist and increasingly where the field is moving that the point of living well isn't to feel good and we can just run around chasing happiness, but that's not really going to lead to living a good, rich life. But usually our emotions tell us something. And if we feel profound regret, it usually tells us that something mattered to us. And to really think through like what's meaningful to you and what do you want your life to stand for? Because again, like sort of taking a step back and looking big picture, like if you regret something hurtful you said to a friend or you regret missing something that was significant to you, that might tell you something about what your values are. And my stance is the most important thing you could possibly do is get really clear about your values and pivot when your behavior moves away from them. Both of the previous strategies that we talked about in step one, like obsessing and also avoiding, are not going to help you as much as the middle path of accepting move ahead with your values. So I think if you regret something, just be like, okay, why do I regret this? Because this emotion is telling me something. It's communicating to me that I really value this specific thing. And then that sort of opens the doors, like a value is kind of like an invitation that has multiple routes of entry to learn a little bit about what mattered to you. And it's so critical to everything else you talk about. And we're going to talk about your book in about 30 seconds, but I think that's such a key one. And then the last one of your tips for turning regret into self-improvement was about... Is to take action. And I think so often, again, like especially if we're obsessing or avoiding, we're just stuck. But the most liberating thing is to do different, like increasingly um, science-based therapies are really pointing to the power of changing your behavior, whether it be you struggle with anxiety or you struggle with sadness. Really like the way out is not convincing yourself or minimizing your pain, but really choosing like the next right step or an action that would be sort of the opposite of hopelessness and drowning in the sentiment that like things will never be better. So I'm all about you regret something, how can you make amends or how can you move forward? And of course, your emotion mind is going to try to convince you that it's not enough or it's too late, but it's never too late. And like in this moment, if you could even just brainstorm, make a list of a couple things you regret and take a powerful action. Yeah, that's a great one too. And then your book, How to Be Single and Happy, Science-Based Strategies for Keeping Your Sanity While Looking for a Soulmate, really integrates mindfulness into what you call the rigors of finding a soulmate. And so I wanted to talk to you about that because I know this the book was really fun to read and you see so many patients who deal with these issues of feeling alone or uncomfortable being solo or feel like they'll be happy when they find someone. What is your thought on how people can be comfortable solo, but also be sort of looking for their person? Your questions are so fantastic. I started this book as sort of an exploration. I had a number of patients that were seeing me for therapy that presented this story that my life would be perfect if only I had a partner. And I don't even know how much you could do for me as a therapist, because how can you make sure that I find a partner? And that's the reason that my life is unhappy. And so the impetus for this book was this exploration and it was patient stories alongside my own personal research, sort of like looking at what are the best-selling books in the dating space and like, are there any that I could really feel like both are scientific and based in research and best practice and also feminist and compassionate. 
And so I started to research this and like, how happy does marriage make us? And I think sort of like regret, this is a big story that we've come up with. I'm all about coupling, but I'm not in favor of, I'm personally married, but I don't believe in making happiness outside of you, which I think is very consistent with mindfulness. And remarkably, in a study of over 15,000 people, on average, this is on average, so of course there are exceptions, but on average, marriage increases happiness by 1%. And so it's really important to sort of remember that your happiness is within your hands. And rather than thinking that coupling is going to create happiness, actually the opposite is true, that happiness can lead to coupling. So in terms of mindfulness, I think it's part of mindfulness is really being present in this moment, which means really in savoring this moment rather than thinking this moment would be so much better if just I had more luck on the dating apps or I can't believe that other people have it so much easier. Those are really happiness traps. Yeah. And you talk about accepting the present moment and not worrying about the future, which is mindfulness. But you also talk about this sort of despair that people have. And how do you shift people? I know you're primarily focused on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and you have some other tools as well. But how do you help people move from that despair, especially when they're so set on wanting to find their mate? I think it's hugely important to really think about like how your life would be different if you had this partner and you knew you weren't going to end up alone and start like similar to the regret piece, like really start taking action because some people sort of put their lives on hold and don't live their best lives because they're waiting for the right moment. It's kind of like mindfulness in that there's never a good time to sit and there's never a time that maybe the urge to get up doesn't arise. But really pursuing the things that really matter to you and sticking with them, even if it's not as enjoyable to go on a trip without a partner, which is just, by the way, like a mental thought. It's not necessarily true at all. So I think really being mindful of not changing your behavior. And I think also the stories you tell yourself, I mean, a huge part of mindfulness is being as you know, is really being connected to this moment and not being in the past or the future. And I think a huge part of people's struggle with happiness when they're single and maybe recently ended a painful relationship is um, thinking that the past is going to predict the future or I have never had luck. So what's going to change that? And to just this moment is just this moment. Mm -hmm. The past is not a predictor of the future. It's funny because you talk in your book a lot about the challenges with dating. And if someone is feeling fragile, and in despair, let's say, before you teach them a lot of these practices, then being out there dating and dealing with the rejection and how not to take things so personally could be a huge issue for them. And do you see that a lot in your practice where people are taking things so personally? Absolutely. I mean, being invalidated or feeling like you don't matter or being dismissed is so painful. It's one of the most painful experiences we could have to be like ignored, which is a common unfortunate dating practice where someone might go on a couple dates with you and then not even communicate that they didn't see this moving forward and they wish you well, but just sort of like evaporating. It's really, really tough. And I think particularly now when we're using apps and things like that, it's really important to sort of approach dating with a nice set of tools to really take good care of yourself when other people might not be as respectful Exactly. And you sort of have to drop the stories that you tell yourself that things are about you and know that everybody else has a story as well. And you just never know what it is. And I love this quote you had in the book. Your task is not to seek for love, 
but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. And that's a roomy quote that you used. So as a therapist, isn't this perfect that your relationships help you to see the barriers within yourself that you've built up that you maybe want to soften in your life? Yeah. I mean, I think to just notice one of my favorite things that I talk about in the book is how loneliness isn't about how many people are in your life, but about Mm -hmm. your perception. I think both behaviorally and mentally, we put ourselves... I have a number of patients that before seeing me took years off of dating because they felt like they weren't ready or why bother? It's too painful. Or mentally, they're constantly sort of thinking this person would never like me or I deserve more without knowing enough about the person. So really sort of thinking of the thoughts and feelings and behaviors that might get in the way and not in a way to sort of beat yourself up or separate yourself, but to increase closeness and connection because remarkably the most powerful intervention for loneliness isn't making more plans or texting more people. It's really noticing like what are the thoughts that keep me apart, which is technically known as maladaptive social cognition, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, thoughts that separate us from other people. And we all do this. I mean, how often do you quickly judge someone as like, oh, we would never be friends or, oh, that's not a love connection. And of course, you get the right to choose who your friends are, but we also don't want to throw away relationships before we have enough information to support us. And so really looking at the barriers includes looking at thoughts, looking at feelings, and looking at behaviors that might be getting in your way. You talked about dialectical behavior therapy in the book, and I think it was in the context of helping people understand what their value is and understand why they have such a strong fear of being alone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So dialectical behavior therapy is one of the therapies that I'm most passionate about. It's an evidence-based approach that teaches people four core skills. And so instead of like therapy being where you go to your therapist and you talk to them about your challenges you had over the week, Dialectical behavior therapy teaches people a curriculum, like a class, on how to manage emotions, emotion Mm. regulation, distress tolerance, how to cope with a crisis without making it worse, interpersonal effectiveness, how to ask for what you want and increase the likelihood that you get what you want, and also mindfulness. And so I think a lot of the DBT teachings, the DBT is the acronym for dialectical behavior therapy, are incredibly related to the skills that we need to date, not because DBT was really sort of designed to help people cope with managing their emotions. And sort of the theory behind the approach Mm. is that when we're invalidated, it's much harder to manage our emotions. When we're dismissed, just think about it. If you're like anxious and someone tells you to get over it and calm down, your anxiety is just going to skyrocket. And so learning certain skills to increase your resilience and increase your effectiveness in the world is really helpful if you've been chronically invalidated and dating can certainly be a chronically invalidating environment. Yeah, it's so interesting because when you mention those four skills, I mean, certainly how to manage emotions, I always think that those types of programs should be integrated into our school curriculums because we get out into the world after college and no one has this training for how to manage emotions, how to be in relationship with others. I mean, we sort of wing it based on our familial experiences. And so it is so interesting that we don't learn these things specifically until maybe we are triggered or have a crisis. Do you think it's really hard for most people to 
manage their emotions or do some people just sort of swimmingly move through life? Patricia, I love, I think you're like, you're right on one of the biggest complaints I have with our academic system. And also it is exciting. There are certain schools and researchers that are trying to sort of distill some of the DBT teachings to uh, school environments. Uh, I know that the University of Washington in Seattle actually has a program for freshmen, like a freshman seminar that includes a lot of the DBT curriculum. But you're absolutely right. I think the biggest predictor of success is not learning certain facts, but learning to manage your emotions and what a gift we could teach future generations if we could offer this preventatively rather than in response to distress. Yeah, I would think it would help us in so many ways. The other therapy you talked about is acceptance and commitment therapy. Was that part of your what do you want chapter where you talk about what you want your life to stand for and how you really want to live your life and having those be sort of these uber questions that you hold close to you? Acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavior therapy are fairly closely related. There's sort of a different path of design to sort of get at the same point, which is the point of life is to get really clear about your values or the life that you want to live, and then to use certain strategies to get untangled from the thoughts and feelings that might hold you back. And they're slightly different in, again, the method of delivery, but both therapies are not about feeling better or feeling less anxious, but really being willing to live your best life and to accept the discomforts that arise along with certain strategies to empower you. Because it's not enough to just be clear about your values. You also need to be really clear about how to manage the emotions that are going to come up and maybe get in your way. So these therapies are really exciting because they're so much more than just targeting one problem, but they sort of teach you how to deal with all your emotions and to not only feel better, but to really live the life that is most meaningful to you. And both of them, the therapies are really rooted in mindfulness. Yeah, I love that. And then you talked about, I think this is a quote and good relationships stem from choosing someone who cares about being a good person. And then you went on to talk about character and how much that matters. Do you feel like people know how to spot good character? Or what are some of the challenges you have with your patients and people you know on that? I think we're like, the first thing we know about someone is a chemistry or attraction, like if we feel this visceral sense of like connection with someone, but the attributes that are most likely to lead to successful relationships for someone's virtues and whether they're a nice person. And it's so incredibly challenging when you're not meeting people through your best friend or your cousin who knows someone really well and says, this is a really great person. We're just seeing people's pictures on a lot of these apps. And so really sort of remembering that as attractive as someone is, we don't want to fall into sort of like overvaluing looks at the expense of deeper attributes that will take a little bit more time to gauge and assess. And I think even before you even necessarily go on the date to really just think about, like, I think it's a really great strategy to make a list of like, what are the most important things in looking for a partner and sort of like, I want people to think through like what their best life looks like, what does their best partner look like, or what kind of person would help them live their best life because it's easy to get derailed by things that are emotionally captivating, but reasonably like it's easy for someone if there's someone that's really exciting or taking them to these great places to sort of get hijacked by the fun. But really the things that are going to be more promising are things that you might have to assess in a different way than sort of the instant. instant Yeah. Well, and also 
I thought this was interesting that you had some case studies where people wanted to understand how to know when they're in their optimal relationship. And this again goes back to the fact that so many of us aren't trained to manage our emotions. And so then we don't have clarity when we're in a relationship. Is this optimal? Am I settling? And how do you balance your head versus your heart versus your gut? Increasingly, researchers that study like what leads to a happy relationship are clear. Certain communication styles and someone that's kind is less likely to fall into some of the traps like stonewalling, which is a fancy way of saying slamming the door, walking away or avoiding staying in a tough situation with respect. I think really pinpointing like both what do I want my life to look like, but also what kind of person is going to be someone that works through conflict well and is respectful of me and makes me feel seen and heard. And again, these things might take a little time, but it's really tough because Increasingly, I think we're moving quickly in terms of physicality, and that can sort of create this emotion-mind reaction where we fill in the blanks with positive assumptions about someone we might not necessarily know that well. And when you see couples together, are you able to pretty quickly see whether they're going to make it? Or do you think that that takes a lot of work? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think the my sense around that is I really have what Carol Dweck coins as a growth mindset. I really believe that people are capable of change if they want to. So if two people are engaging in really bad behaviors and very critical of each other and unkind, if both people really want to work and get really clear about who they want to be in a relationship and are willing to act different, I'm the ultimate optimist. I think that people can pivot. You know, if someone is purposeful and hardworking. My hope when I see patients is that they can dramatically transform. So I'm not concerned if people are engaging in bad habits as much as their openness to learning better ones. Yeah, I love the way you put that. That's so great. What's your mindfulness practice or or your meditation practice? I'm close to one of your former podcast guests, Sharon Salzberg. I love the loving kindness meditation where you spend a few minutes wishing yourself and others well, may I be healthy, may I be safe, may I live with ease, and then going through a series where you wish similar well wishes to people from people that you're close with, to strangers. It seems like it correlates with increased ability to be kinder to myself and others. And I also really like to participate, which you know, in the therapy world is considered a mindfulness practice, which is really being like 100% present with whatever you're doing in the moment. So if you're having a conversation, you're 100% of your units of focus are on the person rather than 30 on the person, 30 on what you're having for dinner and 30 on the people that are in the background. So I really like participation and loving kindness meditation. You talk towards the end of your book about working with a lot of your patients and I guess yourself personally on how do we increase joy in our lives? Because when we have more joy in our lives, we're less focused on the things that maybe frustrate or annoy us. And so what is your advice on that? So one of the ways that I really recommend people increase joy, and this is rooted in research on depression and resilience, is just have a schedule each week. On Sunday nights, I make my schedule for the week, which includes when am I going to exercise? When am I going to, what two or three people am I going to reach out to to make plans in person in this week? When am I going to do my projects that are more effortful, like writing? When am I going to do something that's more contributory? To really sort of strategize ahead of time because I think we're really at risk when we just sort of wait for the, the, 
us to feel like doing something and to instead create a schedule that links to like your values and to what positive psychologists are really clear is sort of the best way to live, which is having like a routine that's full of things for pleasure and also activities that engender a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. And I love that you're suggesting that we be more sort of active about making that happen, that we can schedule joyful activities or events into our lives, even when we may not feel like it, but we can push ourselves to do that and it will have great benefit. Yeah. I mean, I think we need our wisdom, not our mood to sort of govern our routine. I like that. That's a great quote. We like our wisdom rather than our moods to govern our routine. It's great. So is there anything else that we've sort of missed in the book or any other parts of the book that you wanted to share with us? No, I mean, I think just to sort of tie in everything we've talked about in this wonderful conversation, there's a lot of hopelessness around both regret and dating. And a lot of people sort of anticipate their future based on their past. And I really want to invite people to sort of realize that this is a brand new moment and you can strategically do something different and create something different for yourself. That is so great. Thank you so much. We're so happy that you were able to be with us today. Thank you. This was a wonderful delight to talk to you as well. Thanks so much to Dr. Tates for all her insights. You can order a copy of her book at Amazon and all major booksellers and find out more about her on drjennytates.com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at founders at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store and check out Muse at choosemuse.com. We'll see you next time.